John chapter 16, verses 8 to 11 is our passage this morning. And um, just to introduce this, um, this has been a very challenging passage for me. I, I've, of course, read, I remember read, memorizing this in one of the youth programs I was in, and so I've always had this memorized, it's just stuck in my head forever. And, um, and then every time I read it, I'm never quite sure I'm getting it what it means. And I kind of always felt like, this, I think this should be an easy passage to get. But then I always felt like, I don't know if I'm getting this. And so I was relieved uh, somewhat, actually, this week, uh, two weeks ago, I started on this to open it up and read it and say, yeah, I'm confused. I opened up the commentaries and they were all confused. So that, that made me feel even better. But um, now what we're going to do, that, now, I don't want to depress you as we begin this morning, but the reason I say that is because, uh, first of all, you can't go off on heresy on this, no matter what interpretation you choose. So that's good news. Um, whatever the ter- interpretation is, it will be uh, in, in keeping with the rest of Scripture. But it's not enough to say, well, I guess as long as I can't go too wrong, we'll just pick which one I like. We want to be careful to, let's get, what, what is Jesus saying here? And, um, and I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I feel pretty confident in this. Um, but what I'm going to do this morning is try to bring you along with me on this. Because I think it's going to require a little bit of shift in your thinking, as maybe you've read this passage. Um, uh, so not only are we going to find what this passage means, but also, I'm hoping that you may see, okay, this is how to study God's Word. So, so you're going to hopefully see this is how we study it as we kind of do it. And not that you have to do this at home. I have all week to do this. Um, but so that it gives you wisdom yourself and insight in how you, in how you read the, the Scriptures. So, just to set you up, the passage says that the advocate will convict the world. Well, what does that mean? When we, when we hear that, we kind of almost think, well, I know what the world is. It's all the people out there. Right? That's what the world is. Well, not so, not so fast and not so easy. The world is a big thing in John's Gospel. Before we can understand what this means, convicting the world, we have to understand what the world is. So it's been a big theme in John. Just to give you perspective, 78 times in John's Gospel, you'll see the word world. Do you know how many times Matthew, Mark, and Luke all combined? You'll read the word world? Well, I wrote it down here. 14 times. 14 times in all three of the other Gospels, but in John, suddenly 78 times. Big deal. Big deal here. Now, in the first 12 chapters of John, the world has been the arena, or maybe you could say the theater, for all God's saving work in Jesus. So the world is not just people. It's a a theological idea. The world is the place where God is working out his saving plan. So Jesus has come And I'm just putting together stuff in John. Jesus has come into the world. Jesus takes away the sin of the world. God loved the world. God sent his son into the world 
so that the world might be saved through him. The bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus speaks to the world, what he has heard from his Father. So you you get the flavor. We need a flavor this morning. So there's a flavor of the world here as that which has been made through Jesus, chapter 1, and is now the object of God's love and of God's, all God's saving purposes. Now, interesting thing happens. If you keep reading in John, and you come to the second half of John, where now, chapter 13, it's just Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, or on their way now, probably even now, they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. When you come to the second half of John, the world is portrayed very differently. Now the world is not the recipient of God's salvation. Instead, the world is the incurable, irredeemable enemy of Jesus and of his disciples. So, in particular, let's just get the flavor, the second half flavor of the world. The world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it does not see him or know him, but the disciples will, right? The world cannot because why? It's what? It's the world. The world can't receive the spirit of truth because the world is the world, but the disciples will. The world will no longer see Jesus, but the disciples will. Jesus will disclose himself to the disciples, but he will not disclose himself to the world. The ruler of the world is Satan, and he has nothing in Jesus. Well, that's a pretty different flavor. Chapter 15, Jesus said to his disciples, If the world hates you, and it will, because it's the world, Know that it has hated me first with respect to you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, on account of this, the world hates you. Because the world is the world. Ever since these verses, it's been the guilt of the world, the world's willful ignorance of God, and the disciples, this hatred of Jesus and his disciples. That's the major theme. That's the flavor of the world. But now, instead of referring to the world as the world, does anyone remember how Jesus refers to the world? Well, it's in your handout. Maybe you've already seen it. Now he switches to they, because he's identifying a specific representative of the world, namely the Jews. Jesus said to the Jews, you are of the world. I am not of the world. So now he says the Jews are the world. John 15, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, and they didn't, they will keep yours also. All these things they will do because they do not know the one who sent me, contrary to what they claim as the religious Jews. If I had not come and spoken to them in person, that's the Jews, they wouldn't have sinned, but now they have no cover for their sin. Their religious zeal has been exposed as as a fraud. 
If I had not done among them in person, as Jesus walked among the Jews, the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. This happened to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. They will put you out of the synagogue. But indeed, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they did not know the Father or me, contrary to what they claim. So, what's the world here? Well, it's the Jews. And the world continues to be seen not as this place that God is working out his redemptive plan, but now as the declared, inveterate, implacable, incurable enemy of God and his people. Now last week we saw that Jesus pauses to explain, okay, now here's why I didn't tell you about all this stuff at the beginning. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? In other words, you're not too concerned about where I'm going, just the fact that I'm leaving you. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. (laughs) And we're saying, wait a minute. You're saying, if you go away, we're going to start getting killed. Right? If you go away, the world's going to start directing its hatred to us, whereas before you took it all. How is that to our advantage, that you go away? He says, well, if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay. What is this? What's the implication here? The coming of this advocate is in some way going to be a, what, what's, you know, the blank in your handout? A countermeasure. A countermeasure to the Jews' hatred and persecution of Jesus' disciples. So Jesus says, I'm going to go away. The world's going to hate you. They're going to start killing you. But I'm going to send you the advocate to deal with the world. To deal with the unbelieving Jews. So what is the advocate going to do? Okay, are we ready now? See, all that was necessary to understand what Jesus says now. And he says in verse 8, And he, this advocate, when he comes, will convict the world. Once again, Jesus refers to the world. I mean, we've had they, 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 them, 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 there for a long time. Now we come back to, here's the world. This we'll be talking about all the while. And the question then is this, okay? Now, here's, here's how we're learning. How do we read God's word? What is the, sometimes the work we have to do to understand it and to change our, our mentality? Are we meant to see the world here as the object of God's love and his saving purposes in Jesus? In other words, that we would translate like this. The Spirit will convict the world subjectively in its heart so that it feels guilty and then will hopefully believe, right? So the Spirit will convict the world, the hearts of the people in the world, so they feel guilty and will hopefully believe. Or are we meant to see the world as the incurable, irredeemable enemy of Jesus and of his disciples? 
So, in other words, the Spirit will convict the world objectively, as in a court of law. I mean, the world may not feel guilty, but the judge said they are. Period. End of story. The world may not be feeling too much remorse, but they've been convicted in the court of law. So that it now stands condemned. Whether it feels guilty or not is irrelevant. Do we, under, do we understand the picture there? Right? Is the world the object of God's love or is the world the incurable enemy of Jesus and his disciples? Because that's going to tell, that's going to mean everything for how we interpret this. So, how would you decide? How would you decide? Well, which half of John are we in? We're in the second half. The context of where we are clearly supports the second option. Previous context, what we've seen so far. So does the following context. So let's continue on and see what the world is later on in this chapter. Jesus tells his disciples that while they will weep and lament, what will the world be doing? The world will be doing what the world does when Jesus is put to death. It rejoices. Because it's the world. It's what it does. They will, while the disciples will have tribulation in the world, they can take courage because Jesus has overcome the world. We come to chapter 17. Jesus will say that he has manifested his Father's name to the men whom the Father gave him out of the world. Jesus prays on behalf of those whom his Father has given him. And and watch out, Jesus does not pray on behalf of the world. He does not pray on behalf of the world. The world has hated Jesus' disciples because they're not of the world, even as Jesus is not of the world. The world has not known the Father And that's not just, oh, poor world. No, it's the world says, I don't want to know the Father. I refuse to know the Father. I will not know the Father. That's what the world does, because that's what the world is. But the disciples have known that the Father sent Jesus. So the context tells us. But let's look right here at at the immediate context. So the world is seen here still, not as the object of God's love, but the declared enemy of Jesus. All right, John 16, 8 to 9, right here. Look what it says. And the advocate, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Now, I would have felt better about maybe my, our, our traditional interpretation, I think the easy one for us to fall into. If, if Jesus said, the advocate will convict the world in order that they might believe in me. That makes sense to us, doesn't it? The advocate will convict the world in order that they might believe in me. But in fact, Jesus says he will convict the world because they do not believe in me. Are you getting a different flavor for this verse than maybe we've, we've had? And who is they? Did you notice Jesus went back to they? Because maybe we're like, oh, he's, he's talking about the world again. Maybe this is bigger, not just the, maybe he's not really focusing on the Jews. Oh, he's still focusing on the Jews because the next thing he says is, because they, who's they? 
Well, the context tells us it's the, it preeminently the Jewish people. They do not believe in me. It's the Jews who hate Jesus and will kill his disciples. The advocate, when he comes, will convict the world with the result that it will stand in your handout condemned. Now, in combination with that, because I, I, we're, we're going to see there's a bit of a struggle later, later on. So let's look at the meaning of to convict in the Greek. When we think of conviction, I think, well, I was so convicted, right? I was convicted in my heart. And when I'm convicted in my heart, that oftentimes leads me to repentance and to grief over my sin. And that's a lot of times what we think. Most of us don't spend a lot of time in courtrooms, right? So... If we spent more time in the courtroom, we might think more along the lines of when, when the judge or the jury passes the sentence that convicts the person of the crime. The person, the person may not feel bad what, one bit. The person may not even believe they did it or are guilty of it, but they've been convicted. So in the Greek, that is the primary meaning of this word. It is to prove or to bring out into the open a person's guilt, fact, the wrong things he's done. So just to give you the flavor, now we're getting the flavor of this word. 1 Timothy 5. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, who do not repent, what do you do with people who don't repent? Well, you convict them in the presence of all. That's the same word, rebuke, convict. Fact, James 2.9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. doesn't matter what you feel, or what even you know. You're a, you're a transgressor, you've been convicted. By the law, Second Chronicles 26, Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at the king, He had gone into the temple he wasn't supposed to. And behold, now he's leprous on his forehead. And they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had convicted him. How did God convict him? By striking him with leprosy. He brought his sin out in the open. He said, you are a guilty man. Fact. John chapter 3, Jesus says, everyone who does evil hates the light. And does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Notice that these these people feel guilty even before they're convicted. That word for exposed is the word for convicted. So let's think about it this way. When God convicts you and you're his child, let's say, you know, we're his children. When God convicts us, um, that's a fact. You're convicted. It's end of the story, period. But then sometimes we have a response. We do have a response to it. As his children, it, his conviction is meant to lead us to repentance. Right? So we see in Proverbs chapter 3, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his conviction, his reproof. It's the same Greek word in, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. For whom the Lord loves, he convicts. Even as a father, 
corrects the son in whom he delights. Now, let me ask you this. When God convicts the wicked and the apostate, what's the reason for that? It's not, it's not, they're not going to come to repentance. It's judgment and condemnation. So, Jude chapter 12, verses 12 to 16. These are men, I mean, and these men are apostate, reprobate. There's no hope for these men because of their own stubborn, willful sin. These are men for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these men that Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly. Now you get the picture in this passage that these ungodly are not going to be convicted in their hearts. No. They're going to be convicted whether they like it or not. He's going to convict the ungodly concerning all their ungodly deeds which they've done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And you can read the rest of all the stuff about these people that God is going to convict. Now the world is never portrayed as God's child. The people who belong to the world are never portrayed as God's children. So here in the second half of John, in fact, the world is, we know, the incurable enemy of Jesus and his disciples. Therefore, put it together, you, you put it together, the puzzle, pieces of the puzzle. When the Spirit convicts the world as in a court of law, what is the result For the world. What is the result? For the world. It can only be negative. Judgment and condemnation. So we read in the second half of the verse. And the advocate, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and concerning righteousness and concerning Judgment. Now, it makes sense to us to say that the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, right? Sin is bad, so you convict the world of sin. How in the world do you convict the world of righteousness? How do you convict the world of its judgment? Now, because this feels so difficult to some, uh, and so I want to bring this out for you because sometimes I thought, well, couldn't I just preach, preach my own opinion of this passage and just, you all just trust me? I, I would feel miserable doing that. And I hope you would not just trust me. Ever. So I'm going to do my best to be fair and, and to explain. But so that you can get the flavor of this so that when you read it, you're like, you're not saying, how did, how did Timothy get there? But actually when you read it, you say, ah... That naturally makes sense. So, some then would suggest this explanation. The Holy Spirit, instead of what we've been saying, they would say the Holy Spirit will prove to the world what is the truth about sin. So, it's this detached thing. I'm going to tell the world what's the truth about sin and what's the truth about Jesus' righteousness, not their own because they don't have any, and what's the truth about God's coming judgment. Prove to the world the truth about all these things. 
Well, there's loads of problems with that, which I won't go into all of them, but the short answer is that does not fit with the meaning of convict. It just doesn't fit. And there's more problems with it than that. But I'll just, to me, that's, that's a big one. And there's also this. Everywhere else, and this is where you say, oh, how do we study the Bible? What am I doing each week that usually I don't have to bring out into the picture here? Everywhere else in the New Testament or in the Old Testament where we have this phrase, to convict concerning something. To convict someone concerning something. Okay, when you look for that exact phrase in the Greek, every time that happens, what that someone is convicted of is not the truth about something else, good, bad, or indifferent. What they're always convicted of is a specific fault of their own. That's just the way it is every time. And as it happens, you're, you're, whether you get it or not is beside the point. Whether you feel sorry for it, whether you don't feel sorry for it, doesn't, it's beside the point. You've been convicted. So I'm going to skip the first two passages I had and that are in your handout. And I'm just going to come right back to Jude 14 to 15. Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly concerning not the truth about something else, but their own guilt. Their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way concerning all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then one other example, we'll read John 8. Which one of you convicts me concerning sin? In other words, which one of you proves me to be guilty of sin? Obviously, you can't say there. Which one of you proves to me the truth about sin? That doesn't work. So, I conclude then. When the advocate comes, brothers and sisters, this is what he's going to do. He will convict the world as in a court of law concerning its sin, concerning its righteousness, and concerning its judgment. How do we make sense of that? We're all, we know how to do it already. We already have the key. What's the world? Who's the representative of the world right now? The Jewish people. The key is to remember that the specific representative of the world Jesus has in mind here is still the Jewish people. It'll apply to the whole world, but it really only makes sense when you start with the Jewish people as representing the world. Okay? So we read in verse 9. And the advocate, when he comes, will convict the world concerning its sin inasmuch as they do not believe in me. Now, that applies ultimately to the whole world, right? But it applies preeminently at this point to the Jewish people. Who did not believe in Jesus? The Jews didn't. And who had the least amount of excuse for not believing in Jesus? The Jews. Jesus said in chapter 8, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, tell me, what did Jesus just do there? What did Jesus do? 
he convicted the Jews concerning their sin. Now we know now. We're not saying to ourselves, "Uh, I don't know if the Jews felt too bad about it. I don't know if they were feeling too sorry. We know it doesn't matter how they felt. Jesus convicted them. And he has the authority to do so as the Son of God sent from the Father. When Jesus says that to the Jews, I said to you, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus is in your handout convicting the Jews concerning their sin. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 15. If I had not come and spoken to them, the Jews, they would not have sin. But now they have no cover for their sin. I have convicted them of their sin even through my coming. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. They are convicted as in the court of law as sinners on their way to hell. What is the work of the advocate then? It is to, in your handout, continue the work of Jesus. Because, brothers and sisters, you and I don't have the authority in ourselves to go out and convict the world. Only God can do, has the authority to do that. Jesus did it when he was here. Now he says to his disciples, when the advocate comes, he will continue my work by convicting the Jews, as in a court of law, concerning their sin, which is climactically expressed in failing to believe in the Messiah. So let's put it like this. Remember, God's Jesus, I'm going to send the advocate so he can deal with the world that's going to kill you. The Jews may expel the disciples from the synagogue as sinners and heretics. But the Holy Spirit will advocate for the disciples. And he will convict the Jews, even the whole world, concerning their own sin. So all the while that we are being kicked out of the synagogues, if we were living in that first generation, we have the confidence of knowing the word of our Lord who said that the advocate will be convicting that world of their sin, their failure to believe in the Jesus that we follow. You say, that's not very tangible. I would rather, I would rather he strikes them with some kind of sickness. Right? Like Uzziah in the temple, and they get leprosy. But no, we're, we're going to see how the Spirit convicts them. But, but this is what we have to grasp by faith, brothers and sisters. To know what the Spirit is doing during this time in convicting the world that persecutes Jesus' disciples. So Jesus continues in verse 10. And the advocate, when he comes, will convict the world... You know, the world is bad here. It's the enemy. Convicting is you're declared guilty whether you like it, feel like it or not. He will convict the world concerning its righteousness. Inasmuch as I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Now, I could review some other things here. It's, I think it's in your handout. It will be on the website. But let me just say this. 
once again, this applies to the whole world. All the world is trying to achieve some kind of righteousness. But who does this apply preeminently to at this point? The Jews. The Jews were all about righteousness. All about it. But they had gone about trying to get a righteousness in the wrong way. And our, our family, we're, we're reading through Romans and how, how, how wonderful it's been to be reminded of the righteousness that God gives as a free gift versus the righteousness that we work and strive to attain for ourselves. But the Jews had taken God's gracious gift of the law covenant. God gave them the law covenant. And it was a gracious gift. And the Jews took it, and they turned it into a means of making their own righteousness. A self-righteousness that's the result, number one, they have this righteousness just because they're Jews. They're children of Abraham. So they thought they were righteous automatically because they came from Abraham. And we scoff at that because we're Gentiles and we don't have time for that kind of thing. But if you were a Jew, there's a whole history there. You would have been tempted to think the same way. And in our own ways, we do. But secondly, they had a righteousness that was the result of their fleshly striving. Not, not only I was born an a, a Jew, a child of Abraham, but now I, I work hard to keep the letter of the law that God gave only to us, the Jews. They couldn't see that the law actually brings the knowledge of their own sin. And so they took the law, which should have exposed their sin, and they turned it into a badge of moral and ethical I'm better than you. So the Apostle Paul writes of the Jews, he says, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So Paul says of himself that before he was converted, as to the righteousness which is in the law, and he doesn't put righteousness in quotation marks or anything like that. He just says the righteousness which is in the law. As to that righteousness, he was found blameless, at least by all his fellow Jews. I used to question that. Like, how was he found blameless? By God? No, I think what he's saying is he was found blameless by all his fellow Jewish experts in the law. They all said, man, Paul was the most righteous man. Jesus said to the Jews, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then what about here in John's gospel? Have the Jews been pretty smug in their own righteousness? And again, we we look at this for ourselves, and on the one hand, we praise God for his gift of righteousness. On the other hand, we live smugly because we feel pretty righteous. The Jews answered and said to Jesus, Abraham is our father, see? So we're good, we're righteous. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, you would do the deeds of Abraham. And that was their point. We're children of Abraham, so we're like Abraham. We're, we're good, we're righteous. Jesus said, no, if you were, you would be righteous. <laughs> you would do what you ought to. But now you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. You are not righteous. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. What's Jesus doing here? 
He's convicting the Jews concerning their righteousness. The Jews were all about righteousness. Now, why does Jesus say that the advocate will convict the world of its righteousness, the world here in particular being the Jewish people, inasmuch as he goes to the Father? Have you, have you ever wondered that when you read this passage? Well, it, it's the resurrection and ascension of Jesus that vindicates Jesus as the truly, what is it now? You know what this is, right? As the truly righteous one. There's a whole bunch of references in Acts that talk about Jesus as the righteous one. What proves that Jesus was the righteous one when God raised up the one the world put to death? The world put Jesus to death as the righteous people putting the wicked to death. And God said, you're not the righteous ones. Jesus is the righteous one. And I will raise him up from the dead and seat him at my right hand to prove he is the righteous one. And what does that mean about all your righteousness? It means it's a fraud, empty, worthless. And in fact, only further condemns you. Your righteousness further condemns you. Whether you feel like it or not makes no difference. Apart from faith, brothers and sisters, apart from faith in the only truly righteous one, there's only one righteous one, only one, in this ultimate sense, apart from faith in Jesus, all of our righteous deeds, says the prophet Isaiah, are like a filthy, blood-stained garment. See, it's not just about saying my righteous deeds aren't good enough. It's about understanding that my righteous deeds only make me further unclean. They only convict me further. Apart from faith in Jesus, as the only righteous one. So the work of the advocate, what's the work of the advocate? It is to continue the work of Jesus by convicting the Jews as in a court of law. The Jews who killed Jesus' disciples to convict them concerning their righteousness inasmuch as Jesus has now been vindicated as the only truly righteous. The Jews may think that by killing the disciples, they're offering service to God, right? That's what it said. They're going to kill you, and they're going to think they're offering service to God. They're going to think they're righteous. But the Holy Spirit, who advocates for the disciples, is going to deal with those Jews and their supposed and their and their righteousness. Even He's going to deal with the whole world by convicting them concerning their righteousness. And remember, the point is not their response. The point is the fact that they are convicted. Jesus continues then in verse 11, and the advocate, when he comes, will convict the world concerning its judgment. Inasmuch as the ruler of this world has been judged... Now, I cut out a big section. It'll be on the website. So there's other stuff here. But 
It's easy to think here. I think when we read this, until today at least, our minds automatically go to, oh, I understand this. The advocate is going to convict the world that judgment is coming. Well, that's clearly not correct. And the reason we know that is because the judgment of which the Spirit is convicting the world is not future. He's not convicting them of judgment to come, although he does that, I know, I'm sure. That's not the point here, though, because the judgment is not future. Let's first go back to John chapter 12, where Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. The point there is the guilt of the world in this final eschatological day. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So the point is not a future judgment. That's not the point here. The point is the world's guilt and liability under judgment now. Now. It's now. And the world is guilty. Liable under that judgment that is now. And this is given the fact that the ruler of this world has already been cast out. Now we see the same thing here in chapter 16. The advocate, when he comes, will convict the world concerning its judgment. When is this judgment? It's not a future day of judgment. It's its judgment on that actual current day. Which which means that what he's emphasizing is its guilt and liability to judgment. Right now. It's done. It's like it's done. The world is judged. Inasmuch as the ruler of this world has, has been already judged. Now how do we put this together with the previous two? Convicting of sin, convicting concerning righteousness. Well, I look at it this way. This is the summation or the result of the previous two points. Here's how, it, how I think we can read it. To convict the Jews concerning their sin, inasmuch as they don't believe in Jesus, and to convict the Jews concerning their righteousness, inasmuch as Jesus has gone to the Father and is vindicated as the only truly righteous one, is ultimately, once you've convicted the Jews of sin and righteousness, what does that leave? You've got everything there. Therefore, that is to convict the Jews concerning the very things that demonstrate their guilt and their liability to judgment. Judgment that is now already, inasmuch as the ruler of this world has now already been judged. Whew, that's heavy. That's how the Spirit's going to deal with the world that hates Jesus' disciples. And it does not turn out well for the world. And I'm not saying that in a vindictive way. I'm just saying it's a fact. This is what the Word of God says, brothers and sisters. So when when we consider the prospects of persecution and being put to death and being hated and all of that, understand that Jesus sends the advocate into the world to deal with all of that by convicting not his children, but the world, so that it stands condemned. And not those who have put their faith in Jesus. 
But now we ask, how is the advocate going to do this convicting as in a court of law? And the simple answer is in the preaching of the gospel. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples in chapter 15. He just said this, chapter 15. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the advocate's going to do this work. And then Jesus says, and you will bear witness also. So the Spirit's witness accompanies our witness, our preaching. The Spirit's convicting work accompanies our preaching. How will the advocate convict the world? Well, like this. Concerning its sin, again, whether they get it or not, whether they feel sorry or remorse or whatever, even if they are oblivious, the world might hear and it just kind of goes right past. But the preaching of the gospel still convicts. Concerning its sin, The Spirit convicts the world through our proclamation of Jesus as the one whom God sent from heaven. The advocate convicts the world concerning its righteousness through our proclamation of Jesus as the one who's been vindicated as the only truly righteous one by his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And the advocate convicts the world concerning its guilt and liability to judgment through our proclamation of Jesus as the one through whom the ruler of this world is already judged. When Jesus was here, he convicted the world of these things. He had the authority to do so as the Son of God. Now that Jesus has gone away, the advocate continues his work in connection with our preaching of the gospel. Here's a question, and an important one, I think. Could the world, before Christ came, before Jesus ever came, could the world have been convicted as in a court of law? Like if God said, okay, I'm going to bring the world into the courtroom, I'm going to pass sentence. Could it have been convicted concerning its sin? Concerning its righteousness? And therefore also concerning its guilt and liability to judgment? Yes, it could have been. But not in the ultimate sense that it can now, in these last days, through the preaching of what? The gospel. What does Jesus say? The Spirit will do this work inasmuch as they do not believe in me. In other words, this is something that can only happen now in these last days. And as much as I go to the Father, it's only something that can happen now in these last days when Jesus has gone to the Father. And as much as the ruler of this world has been judged, this convicting work can only happen now in these last days. And so it is the eschatological preaching of the gospel, which is and I underline this twice in my notes, it's in italics, I think, in yours, which is to the world as the world. The preaching of the gospel is to the world the ultimate aroma of death. Not because the gospel smells like death, 
but just because that's how the world inhales it. It's, it's their nose that's the problem, right? Because in the preaching of the gospel, the one who advocates for us, the spirit of truth, is at work to convict the world. As in a court of law, with the result that the world stands condemned. What a terrible thing it is to be convicted. If we consider, as we mentioned at the beginning, the picture of standing in a court of law, an American courtroom court of law, before the judge, the jury, and they come in and and they read their verdict. To be declared guilty, to be convicted in that objective, factual sense, is a horrible thing. But how much worse, how much infinitely worse to be convicted in the divine courtroom. To be convicted and so to stand condemned. And yet who of us can escape that conviction? Now what about the first half of John, we ask? What about the first half? Jesus coming into the world, taking away the sin of the world. God loving the world, sending his son into the world so that the world might be saved through him. What about the disciples being sent into the world so that they might go and bear fruit in the world? We know. We don't go out to preach the gospel just so, we can, just so that we can, the Spirit will be convicting everyone. We, we, we don't have that mentality. That's not, that's not why. That's not the primary reason for preaching the gospel, is it? The, the ultimate reason for preaching the gospel is not to condemn. It is to save. It is true that the Spirit convicts the world because the world is the world. The Spirit convicts the world through the preaching of the gospel with the result the world will always stand condemned and never be anything other than condemned. Well, that's simply because of what the world is. And yet, and yet, here's a mystery that we can, I'm I'm going to say something now that we cannot get. We cannot comprehend. It's impossible. And yet, it is from out of this very world That God is calling all those that he has given to Jesus. It's from out of this very world that Jesus is calling and bringing in his sheep. And how is he doing this? Through the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel that on the one hand is the conviction of the world is on the other hand the salvation, you could say, of the world insofar as he is calling out of the world those who are his own, those that he has chosen and given to his son. And so here then is is a miracle we cannot understand 
And it's the miracle that though we can't understand it in our brains, it has been worked in you. And it has been worked in me. I mean, look at me. It's been worked in me, right? And I can look at you. And if you're a believer in Christ, I know it's been worked in you. What is this miracle? It's this. When the gospel came to you, and the Spirit convicted you. I'm not talking about how you felt. The fact is, when that gospel was preached to you, there was an ultimate moment when you were convicted. With the result that you stood now condemned before the holy tribunal of God. When that happened, the Spirit, at the same time, did another work. Opening your eyes. To see that you had been convicted and declared guilty. And to respond by crying out for mercy and salvation. What, what, what is a convicted criminal? What is left for him to do but to plead and beg for mercy? And that's what we did. Because the Spirit worked in our hearts so that we so that we saw that, so that we cried out. So therefore then, let us proclaim the gospel to what? To who? The world. Knowing that it is in this proclamation of the gospel to the world that something is going on. The Spirit is advocating for you. Always to convict Always, every time, to convict, but also by God's sovereign, truly miracle-working grace, also to save. We know that because we remember that we ourselves were once convicted and declared guilty, but that now we have cried out to Jesus, and what have we received? Pardon and forgiveness. Thanks be to God, says the Apostle Paul, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life. To life. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you take the work that we had to do this morning to be faithful students of your word, and that we come not, not just to a place of mental getting something in our head, but that our hearts grasp the the beautiful assurance of Jesus' word to his disciples. And so also his word to us. That even as the world hates and persecutes us, that it would hate and even put to death those who follow Jesus. Yet the advocate is advocating for us. Convicting that world. So that it stands condemned. So that it is not we who stand condemned. But the world that persecutes. And yet we also, even as we know that we were once in that very world, 
that we who were once ourselves convicted and condemned, we know that in the preaching of the gospel, you are still saving, calling, inviting, bringing. So Lord, help, the, help our knowledge of the Spirit's work, of the Advocate's work in through the preaching of the gospel to give us boldness, to give us joy, to give us hope in the preaching of the gospel. Lord, I pray that as we prepare for this Lord's Supper, that you would enable us to be staggered in our minds and hearts that we who stood before the the divine tribunal convicted and condemned yet the spirit worked so that we cried out for mercy and received pardon and forgiveness through Christ I pray that that's true of everyone here In Jesus' name, amen.